Hello, and welcome to episode 166 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How's it going? Hello, Jason. It's going well. It's a good week. School is winding down, getting ready for summer, getting ready to do some travel in the next couple of weeks. And, and so it's like that weird kind of pre-trip, getting everything done, accomplished, ready to go type thing. How, how are you, sir? I'm good. If you're getting ready to do some travel, man, we, we have a lot to talk about. We sure do. This episode is going to be a good one. In just a little bit, we're going to welcome John Walton back to the show. We're going to talk about what is going wrong and and why it might not be a great time to be traveling, but it's not boring. I'll say that. No, it might be easier to talk about what's going right rather than what's going wrong. Much shorter conversation. Yes, but we will have the long conversation with John in just a little bit. But first, we turn to an unfortunately all too common event in Nepalese aviation, another crash that has claimed the lives of 22 people this time, three crew members and 19 passengers were on a Terra Air Twin Otter. They were flying from Pokhara to Jomson, and this happened on the 29th of May. The aircraft flew into inclement weather, according to reports from folks in the area, and it was found the next day it had impacted a mountainside at about 14,500 feet. So this is, like I said, I mean, it's not a common experience. It doesn't happen every day, but flying in Nepal is- Treacherous. <laughs> I was about to say inherently dangerous, but that's not the case. It's not inherently dangerous. It is treacherous. It, it requires a very specialized set of skills, extreme, extreme situational awareness, and the ability to say, no, we are not going to operate today because we just can't fly in these conditions. This particular airline has had a handful of incidents over the past few years. It has had non-fatal accidents in 2017 and 2018, and it had its previous fatal accident was in 2016. It Basically, the same thing happened. 23 people on board the aircraft. It departed from Pokhara. It was flying to Jomsom. It flew into a mountain. In that, in the 2016 crash, the co pilot was the pilot flying. The captain was the pilot monitoring. The aircraft deviated to avoid clouds that had formed at about lower than 12,000 feet. So they climbed up to 12,000. The aircraft entered clouds anyway. The ground proximity warning system began to uh, sound warning that the aircraft was flying too close to the ground. The pilots, because they're used to flying so close to these mountains where the GPWS begins to sound, even if you are in safe flight, if you can see the mountain, they basically ignored the warnings and flew into a mountain. We don't know the exact cause of the crash this week. But the situation in Nepal, as far as when an aircraft crashes, it's more often than not, it flew into weather that had formed in between the mountains. The aircraft enters a situation it shouldn't be in, and there's a crash. There are, I'm looking at over five dozen crashes 
going back to 1946 in the Aviation Safety Networks database. And nearly all of them flew into weather and the aircraft crashed into the side of a mountain. Yeah, it's a region that is definitely known for, as I said earlier, having treacherous flight conditions. The weather can change without notice at any given moment. And unfortunately, accidents like this do happen. Um, The conditions at several airports in the region are also not exactly top notch. And some of the the airports themselves, the the design of them is just kind of otherworldly compared to the rest of the aviation system. But very unfortunate news out of uh, Nepal this time around. I guess the only good thing here that happened is that they were able to find the wreckage relatively quickly and locate the crash site. So another in the long line of of crashes in Nepal, hopefully they'll understand uh, what happened here. And I'm sure we'll have, have more to say about that in the future. Let us turn to some good news for Boeing, for a number of airlines that are eagerly awaiting delivery of 787s. It seems that the coming soon and in the second half of 2022 will be near the first half of 2022. We had talked in the past couple episodes about when the FAA would sign off on Boeing's plan to bring the 787 back. And they had been targeting the second half of 2022, which begins now in 30 days. And today, Lufthansa announced that they are preparing to take delivery of their first 787. This summer. Yeah. And I'm quoting that in this summer, we've heard other airlines this year claiming to be imminently taking delivery of 787s. American had said that before the summer rush that they planned on taking them, I think starting like May or June. Clearly, that did not happen. So in this case, I assume Lufthansa is just repeating the information being given to them by Boeing, which is being given to them by the FAA. This is obviously not a 100% locked down time frame, but it seems like Lufthansa is fairly confident that it will happen sometime this summer, whether that's uh, July or August or September. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. So the reason this is more, I guess, believable, this particular bit of marketing is more believable, is that in, well, we're recording on the 1st of June and the podcast will come out on the 3rd. But on the 2nd of June, The Federal Aviation Administration will publish in the Federal Register its final rule adopting a new airworthiness directive for certain Boeing company model 787-8-9 and-10 airplanes. This airworthiness directive, and in case anyone was concerned, I'm quoting the airworthiness directive here, was prompted by reports of a missing shim at a joint common to the main torque box skin panel and rear spar root fitting. Of course, of course. Indeed. Airworthiness Directive requires inspecting the MTB skin panel and rear spar root fitting for cracking and delamination and the application on condition actions. So all of this is to say we are nearing the end of the 787's return to service process. The beginning of the end. Yeah, yeah, I guess the, the beginning of the end. With the Airworthiness Directive ready to go, the FAA is, is basically satisfied that there is a fix so that they can publish the fix. The inspections 
so th- there's two parts. There's the inspections that the FAA estimates will cost uh, U.S. operators $108,290 per airplane. And then if there are any aircraft that need rework, they estimate that those aircraft will cost a little over $12,000 per aircraft. However, it's interesting that this is noted in the Airworthiness Directive. According to the manufacturer being Boeing, some or all of the costs of this Airworthiness Directive may be covered under warranty. So if you got the warranty, you should be in good shape. Hi, we've been trying to reach you about your airplane warranty. Please call us back to get your 787s in service. You probably shouldn't send that call to voicemail. No, no. That's the one you're going to want to answer. So it looks like things are finally officially moving in the right direction. The Airworthiness Directive, which we'll link to the actual Airworthiness Directive, so you can read it yourself if you so choose, will be available coming well, yesterday, if you're listening to the podcast on Friday. And then it goes through the comments process and gets adopted and then they move forward. So all this is to say that the timeline of having Lufthansa's first 787 and other 787s that still need to be delivered back in service by this summer, that seems to me to be a legitimate claim at this point. Yeah. And remember, the 787s Lufthansa is taking here are, are not the 787s that they recently put through an order for. These are kind of interim aircraft that Lufthansa is going to be taking that were originally destined for Heinen Airlines or not taken up because Heinen can't afford new airplanes. Then Planespotters.net says it was going to Vistara, also not taken up, don't know why. And now they're at Lufthansa. So the, the first aircraft they're taking, named Berlin, is almost a three-year-old aircraft. So it's been sitting around wherever seven eights sit around these days for, for nearly three years. So this thing has been begging to get to the sky for quite some time. So hopefully it does actually happen this summer. Yeah. This one's been in Charleston. It's been recently painted and it's in the Lufthansa livery. As soon as they can deliver it, the aircraft is going to go to Frankfurt where it will receive its official cabin outfitting at the uh, Lufthansa Technic Center in, in Frankfurt, and then it'll be put into service once it is in fact ready. So, you know, things are moving in the right direction. And hopefully, 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 a number of airlines can take delivery of these aircraft to take advantage of what is already shaping up to be an extremely busy summer. I think we should pause now. Um, speaking of very busy summers, and take a short break and bring John on. We will talk about some of the things that have been happening at airports, especially in Europe, but also a bit in the US to a much lesser extent. And also, we're going to talk about something completely different from that as well. And that'll be KLM's new premium economy seat that we're about to see. So stay with us. We'll be right back with John Walton. Welcome back. We are now once again joined by John Walton, independent aviation journalist and power outlet placement professional. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. That intro will make a little more sense in a few minutes. Maybe. (laughs) Who knows? So we've asked John to come onto the show this week to talk about two very, very different things, but both well in his wheelhouse. So really appreciative to ha- have John on the program. 
First, we're going to talk about what's happening in airports around the world, as opposed to airlines, where folks are waiting hours and hours and hours in queues, some just abandoning their posts and saying, forget it, I'll, I'll fly another time, others fighting their ways through it onto the plane only to then be at the mercy of the airlines. And then next, we're going to talk about once you get on the plane, a new premium economy experience coming to KLM and some of the quirks that we've seen from the design. So let's get into the kind of airport. I don't hesitate to call them meltdowns. I mean, it's been awful at a number of major airports, especially in Europe over the past couple of weeks. I'm thinking Dublin, Amsterdam, Heathrow, and John, you had a poor experience in Munich. So, so let's start there and figure out what is going on. It's basically the industry coming back from the COVID-19 pandemic and not having enough people in place, not necessarily with the airlines themselves, though in some cases that's certainly true, but largely in the third parties who deliver quite a lot of their services. So, for example, the check-in people who might be outsourced to a third-party ground handler, the security people the airport staffers themselves, people who do quite thankless, quite poorly paid, and quite low benefit jobs in terms of, you know, the, their terms and conditions. And, you know, after the pandemic, people said, actually, you know what, I'm not coming back to that job, or they found something else that they like better. Or in some cases, the various governments who provide security clearance status to be able to work at airports are slow there as well because they're backed up too after you know the best part of two years with very little travel. So it's really a staffing problem. The meltdowns that we've seen have largely been very visible because they're in many cases, the sort of check-in staff, the security staff, and so people are sort of backing up outside the terminal. And they are, unfortunately, really unpredictable. The only way that you can predict if one's going to be happening is if one's already happened. It just takes a few people too few to process a few passengers too many, and and the, the very well-oiled cogs of the aviation machine rather gum up. So how do you think we've gotten to this position since... Airlines, especially in Europe and the UK specifically comes to mind, lobbied for a very long time to lift all restrictions, let passengers have at it, get them back in the air, let's resume travel. And it seems like from every point of view, from the beginning of the experience to the end, when you're leaving the airport, nothing is as it should be. How did we get to this point? Oh, bad pay and poor working conditions. I mean, I guess there must be more to it, but that seems like a big deal. To be honest, that's going to be 80% of your problem. A lot of it is probably also around, I mean, a lot of the remaining 20% that is, is probably around coordination. It's about airlines, you know, communicating properly with their suppliers and their service providers about, you know, what's going to be available when. But yeah, it's an industry that was shut down for a year that you can't exactly turn on like a mains water tap and that has generally paid people very poorly and treated them very badly in these behind-the-scenes jobs. And people kind of aren't up for that anymore. And with a very uh, strong buyer's market when it comes to, to deciding who you're going to work for, you know, a lot of people are saying, actually, I'm going to go do something else. So aviation basically just needs to realize that it's going to have to pay people better. It's going to have to treat people better. It's going to have to speed up the ability to, you know, issue passes. Because look, if you get a, if you get a job offer and it's going to take four months to get you a security clearance to be able to check people in or to be able to, you know, work airside, that's not much use. So yeah, it's largely a structural industry problem that is becoming super visible right now. It is fortunately, it's a problem you can throw money at. Unfortunately, the airlines don't have a lot of money right now. 
is it just up to the airlines or is it something that falls on airport authorities or local municipalities or even federal governments? Like this doesn't have a one size fit all solution. I mean, it does. Pay people better and treat them better and they'll want to work for you. I don't think there's any rocket science here, to be honest. I think that you're just competing in a very fierce labor market. There's just no one entity that can pull that lever and suddenly issue greater paychecks to everyone. We're talking airlines have to contract out for services like you mentioned, like it in Munich or your flight to your home airport where you have contracted ground staff. So they have to do that. And airlines have their own staff and then airports have their own staff and security screening companies have their own staff. So it, it's not as simple as just pay people more. It's you have to get the entities that pay these people to get them to pay more. Oh yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. It's, it's everyone who's involved in this. They face fewer penalties for ending up in the situation that we are now than they do from assuring that service is actually provided to passengers, right? I'm not entirely sure that anybody is going to get, you know, particularly strongly disciplined over the fact that you've got passengers spilling out into the, in, into the roadway, you know, versus the other incentive, which is costs, right? Airlines and aviation have been driving costs down, right? And a lot of that is by outsourcing people who used to be airline employees to being third-party contractors. And the way that these third-party contractors make their money is to pay people less and promise services. Perhaps those people can't provide because there aren't enough of them, or they haven't been trained the right way, or they're not familiar enough with operations, right? That's why they're cheaper, you know? And if you have less job security, less pay, poorer working conditions, you know, that's tricky when you come to recruit people. So I have very little doubt this could be solved within a couple of months if people just paid more and offered better working conditions. Now, I was going to ask, but I think you already alluded to the answer here, is how could the average passenger avoid situations like this? And, and, and you already said that you can't really know it's going to happen unless it's already happening. What are some other proactive measures someone could take to hopefully do their best to avoid ending up in a four-hour line standing outside in the roadway in Dublin? Yeah, I mean, so there's the kind of thing that you can do when you're booking your ticket. So book flights as early in the day as possible, for example. In theory, flights that are earlier in the day, much like if there's weather disruption, there'll be less knock-on effects as you go through the day, and things should hopefully kind of catch up overnight. Other than that, if you're booked through one of these problem airports, you might want to start giving your airline a, a call or even better sort of drop them a direct message via socials to say, look, I'm concerned. This has been a problem. Is there any way that you can route me through somewhere else, for example, somewhere that seems to be working well? But you do always risk the fact that, you know, they may just, your airline and airport may just have a bad day. We are coming to the summer season. There are thunderstorms already, you know, in, in various airports around Europe. And, you know, Frankfurt tends to fall over whenever there's thunderstorms, and, and a number of other airports do as well. So I think we're basically going to see a lot of it is just the leeway that was previously built into aviation that had been there for, for years and years and years is no longer there. And in many ways, people don't know what the new leeway needs to be. And as a result, you have situations where, you know, like my flight. So I was flying, and this was for, for full disclosure, Lufthansa paid for my ticket. I was flying on Lufthansa from my home airport in Lyon to Munich to Montreal and back. And we arrived on our lovely little CRJ from Lyon to Munich. And we sat in the remote stand out by a lovely A340-600 that I was enjoying out the window. And we just sort of sat there and the pilot was like, oh, yeah, it seems that we've surprised everyone by arriving. And just, yeah, people didn't turn up for 20 minutes to, with the bus and the, and the little wagon that takes the, the luggage off. You know, even then we got to the 
we got to the baggage claim and we waited another 40 minutes for, for baggage. So even at the airports like Munich, the Lufthansa operation at Munich is generally excellent. Even there, you're seeing situations where it feels like there isn't enough stuff to go around. And I think you just have to pack your patience this summer, count your blessings that we're all you know, still alive and that we are all able to fly. And yeah, remember that this is a lot better than 2020 or 2021. That's true. We're traveling. We're mostly free to go where we want. We just have to pack a lot more patience. And Ian, we're going to do something very rare right now, and that's offer praise for the USTSA, either incidentally or... We need to mark this on the calendar. Mark this as a significant event that the TSA being a federal agency here in the US, almost every airport has security screening done by the TSA, a federal agency, and they did not lay off any employees, thankfully, as far as I know, or any significant number during COVID. I mean, they're actually, I think, due for a fairly significant raise, something like 30% upcoming. Um, So when TSA needed to ramp up screening and personnel, they were able to do that. So thankfully, here in the US, for once, we seem to actually have a handle on things. The airline side, not so much. We are facing all of the issues that John has mentioned on the airline side, but security screening, I cannot recommend pre-check anymore right now. I have not really encountered any significant weight at any airport so far, but I'm very much looking forward to seeing what Hamburg Airport looks like next month, John. I'm sure we'll have a very fun time there. Oh, yes. Not an airport known for efficient security to begin with. It's a joy and a pleasure. And after a full week of, of running around a trade show, it's even, it's even more delightful. So I can't wait for that one. See you there. <laughs> and now for something completely different. Let's talk power outlets. Ian, tee this one up for us. Okay. So KLM is joining the now quite long list of airlines that offer a very well-appointed premium economy cabin, taking a seat setup that has been seen mostly before and adding a few tweaks. And it's those tweaks that have us very, very confused. John, you and Jason had a conversation on Twitter that, that I kind of came to a little bit later in the day and was just as confused as you all. So let's talk about what they've done with this seat and why it's a little concerning. Yeah, absolutely. So first things first, this is a great seat. It's great to see KLM with a premium economy cabin. Delighted they're they're running out on all of their Boeing aircraft. So that's all the 787s, all the 777s, not on the A330s, though those should be exiting the fleet sometimes in the next sort of three years or so. It looks like every other premium economy seat. That's because it is every other premium economy seat. It's the <laughs> Collins Aerospace MyQ, which is spelled M-I-Q. And that's the seat that I'm pretty sure all three of the US major international airlines use as their premium economy. You'll often see it at the front of a narrow-body aircraft in the US as well, certainly the modern ones. It's very noticeable because on the aisle side, it's got this quite distinctive vertical armrest which basically lowers straight down so that somebody in a wheelchair can just scoot straight across with no worries. It sort of recesses down into the in, into the sort of end bay of the seat. So it's, it's pretty distinctive, pretty obvious. But this one's a little bit weird. So the first images that came out were from the seat maker itself, Collins and from KLM. And I don't know about you, Jason, but my eye was rather quickly drawn to a bright green, this USB socket is on light, around they two want you USB know it's there. 
Yeah, so there's two USB sockets, a USB-A, which is the old square one, and a USB-C, which is the new sort of ovular one. And they are basically about six inches down your thigh on towards the center of the two, the seat pair there, which is a very strange place for them, not only because they're kind of hidden, but also because if you try and plug something in, you're likely to have either the cord digging straight into the side of your thigh or to snap the cord off in the socket. That's what I'm most concerned about. Yeah. I mean, both of those things are not great, but that's something people have done previously is, you know, you have an unfortunate snapping incident and then the power socket is out of commission for as long as it takes for the aircraft to get back to a maintenance space that has the right uh, little cartridge that goes in and out and is connected to the to the power socket. But it's just a really weird position for it, right? And <laughs> even more so, the front row seats right next to it, like literally right where your knee is, also have the flight attendant call bell and light in one of those places where there were a few seats a while back. And I want to say it's, it was like the, sort of the United 777-200s, the domestic that's ones. The domestic one, that's exactly correct, which they did eventually modify that. So a, a five-hour flight is not full of five hours worth of, Ding. of call bell right. dinging. They recessed those buttons eventually. <laughs> yeah, but basically the problem was that they had this, these, these buttons that were just, the buttons themselves were almost raised. So you put your arm down and you summon the flight attendants. Who were thrilled about that? Let me tell you, a United Flight Airlines flight attendant just loves being summoned. So yeah, this is the, that was one of the first thing that a lot of us were looking at. This has only been the first row, right? Because in the first row, like behind the bulkhead, especially on a refit like this, you're like, you know what? Actually, I get it. They didn't want to pull the entire bulkhead down and sort of mount the screens on the front and then have the sort of USB sockets mounted into the screens. Like, I get it. That's going to be annoying. But you know what? You're in a bulkhead. You've got no one reclining back into you. You make That's some just one of the trade-offs. Right. But no, the USB sockets are there all the way back in every row. And I'm baffled by it. I'm absolutely baffled by it. Not least because if you look at it, if you look at the images that they sent through, there's not just those two USB sockets. There's also an AC socket like on the seat back in front of you at like shin level. And I think I also see a USB-A socket there as well. So this is for your secondary socket and your USB-C socket if you haven't brought your AC adapter. And I'm just like, how and why did so many people at two companies that are very good at passenger experience, right? KLM and Collins Aerospace are not new at this. How did all of these people fail quite so badly to say, actually, no, we can't do that. That's that silly. I think what's most interesting is that this is not a new seat. Nope. Like we said, we've seen it all over the place and we've never quite encountered it with this particular issue. The, the USB ports usually may be stashed in under the armrest in the seat back or in the screen or in the seat back in front of you. So this is a very intentional choice. Or in the front console, which is looking at the seat, it looks like there's plenty of space there to do that. Yeah, yeah. Now, I had some chats with a whole bunch of people and the working theory is A, huh? But B, people are concerned (laughs) that it might be a heating issue because certainly these new USB-C sockets do put out a lot of heat as they transform the current. So that might be it. But even so, I find it really difficult to see how the heating would be better like at your thigh than on the front. So they're marketing this as a leg warmer. (laughs) 
Well, I don't know. I mean, some of those old triple sevens get quite brisk, you know, if you're in the front row. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, that's why I said the first response was, huh? Because no one has a very sensible answer to this. I would love to have someone from KLM come on and just answer the question, did you sit in the seat? Did you try to plug something in when sitting in well, the seat? Because, importantly? Yeah. The Dutch are a tall people, right? Like they're sort of statistically Europe's tallest people, right? Or at least certainly one of them. So I don't understand how an author, oh, you know what? This is fine. I mean, it would be silly even if, you know, average height was, was smaller because it's within the stretch of Your the leg seat. is still going to be there. Yeah. And what's even worse is when you recline, because this is one of those articulated seat pan seats, the seat pan comes up and almost hits this thing anyway, right? Like it's about two USBs length away from the bottom of the of the charger. So I just find it really baffling, not least because right behind it, so behind the sort of the, the mechanically operated seat controls for recline, etc., are the double sockets for the headphones, right? There's the, there's the new style, the magnetic style, and the old style. Now those, because if you think about it, the prongs of those come out, and then there's a sort of 90 degree turn, like a British style plug, right? Rather than American or European style plug, which whether the cable sort of comes out in parallel with the, with the prongs, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If I had to put anything there, that would be what I put there. Because that, you know, those things, they only intrude on your leg by the, the width of the, of the sort of 90 degree turn structure in the plastic. So it's all just very strange. And nobody understands why. Collins didn't have a comment for me, apart from referring me to KLM. And KLM haven't got back to me. So yes, I highly recommend looking at it and just sort of staring at it, as I think we all did, and went, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to the show notes to John's article on Runway Girl Network, just so that you can look through all of the images and, and get a good look for what we're talking about. Because there are a number of design choices that could have been made because a number of other airlines have already made these design choices. Right. Yeah. And I thank KLM for being forward thinking and not just putting in an AC power outlet or a USB type A outlet, but also a USB type C that can probably push quite a good bit of wattage, maybe... 60 watts. I know some in the very near future are going up to 100 watts, which will charge just about any device you throw at it. But remember, what they install today is likely going to be in service for, I don't think it's a stretch to say, possibly decades. And the first time somebody snaps a USB port off um, and that thing short circuits or whatever, it's going to be a, a long time before it ends up being replaced. Or if there's significant issues with this, they may just turn them off outright and say, sorry, we screwed up. No more USB-C for you. Yeah, I mean, so I'm a little more charitable than that, because it's very clear that this is in one of those quick-release cartridges, right? If you look at the picture, you can see that there's that there's there's a larger screw at the bottom and that sort of hole at the top where you put that special tool in to kind of eject it. This isn't that difficult to swap out. The problem is, if you have to swap out 30 of them every time the plane comes back to home base, that's a lot of swap-outs. And you have to know that it needs to be swapped out. Maybe there's an off chance that these are smart enough to report that they have been broken. But nine times out of 10, if you encounter a broken USB port, you're you're not mentioning it to anyone. And the airline probably doesn't know. And that's why it's still broken. Exactly. Exactly. You think, oh, I I guess it doesn't all work, right? So please, listeners, if you encounter something broken with your passenger experience, tell your flight attendant, because that's kind of the only way that things get fixed until we have the Internet of Things sensors in every part of the passenger experiences to say, I am broken, please fix me. And we're working on that. Yeah, people are already working on that. 
But yeah, the next generation of planes, maybe. But yeah, it's all very strange. I feel like it's kind of ridiculous that like KLM got a great new seat. It looks great. It's a seat that lots of other airlines have had and really like. But this is really weird. It's just weird. On that note. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a distinctive design choice that doesn't really improve anything. No. Like it's thank you for playing, but. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm still happy they're just doing it because KLM is way, way, way late to the game in rolling this out. So I'm just happy we're getting something. I think that's a perfectly reasonable response. Yeah, absolutely. Crumbs, Jason. We're getting crumbs. We are. But nice, anyway. nice KLM blue crumbs. Ooh. Like Stroopwaffle crumbs. Wait, this is probably the most important question. This is a new class of service for KLM. And now in business class, they give you the little, the little house with the little liquor bottle inside. Will you get an apartment What are premium economy passengers going to get? So I was looking, and A, it's not mentioned, B, it's not shown. What is shown, however, is a slightly smaller version of the, the very charming uh, sort of fluted business class champagne glass. So that will hmm, be an offer. Okay. Well, there you go. When this actually reaches the fleet... We will, A, have to see if the USB position has changed, if we've complained about this enough for them to revisit things, and B, to see whether or not Jason gets his apartment and little champagne glass. John Walton, independent aviation journalist and power outlet placement professional. John, thank you so much for coming back on the show. We always appreciate it. Pleasure as always. Welcome back. After the conversation with John, I don't know if I'm more anxious about flying in the next couple of weeks, flying to Europe, that is, or if I just am just kind of numb to it now and I know what to expect going in and I guess what happens, happens. Yeah, I don't know. I feel, again, like I'm fine flying within or out of the US, but I'm dreading some of my European flights coming up in in a couple of weeks. But hopefully... Things stabilize at least a little bit by then, and I don't miss my connection at Heathrow and end up having to stay overnight. Not that that's the worst thing in the world, but who's got the patience for this stuff? We're going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll find out just how far my patience goes. In, in the podcast episode in a couple of weeks, we're going to find out exactly who has the patience for this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. This is unfortunate news, but it's not entirely unexpected. South African airline Comair has once again ceased all flying due to the fact that it has no money. Oh, you need money. Famously, everyone knows that uh, you need money in this industry because you you have to convert money into – I don't know what we do in this industry, but you need money to make things happen even if you're not making any money. But man, poor South Africa just can't get a win with its airlines. South African Airways – it's always a mess. Mango, I'm pretty sure they've stopped operating a couple months ago. Comair, which is Kalula and Comair, the, the British Airways branded subsidiary, that's gone too. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about what is left in South Africa. And you have Camair. Who else is out there? That other one that has like three really, really old A320s. What do they lift? 
Yeah, Lyft, the LYFT, the recent startup airline, they're getting going with some elder A320s that they've managed to get into their fleet. I believe one of the MSNs that they're flying was 64 and the other one was 76. So 64 is 1989 and 76 would be 1990. Yeah. Not that there's anything so, wrong with that. No, no, but. no. They're, I mean, again, one of the great things about aviation is the age of the airplane doesn't really matter as long as you take care of it. It's just to say that they're picking these up. You know, the reason that they can offer low cost fares is because these airplanes are not, you know, not costing them a lot of money. No. There's also uh, Saf, Fly Saf Air and Airlink are really the only two airlines operating worth even discussing at this point. So really just sad for South African aviation that this just, it seems like it's a a problem that's never going to get solved at this rate. And unfortunately, it's a circular thing where they raise enough cash to, to operate and then something happens and they no longer have enough cash to operate, you know, that flying program that doesn't make them enough cash to continue operating. So, you know, it's, they just keep running into this you know, circle of roadblocks, raise enough money. There's another roadblock, raise enough money. So hopefully as things continue to get better in a number of places, and hopefully South Africa is one of them, and hopefully the airline gets back on its feet once again. But we'll we'll see, you know, how long their suspension lasts this time and how long it takes them to raise the funds, if they can in fact raise those funds. The saga of Qatar Airways and Airbus just keeps getting weirder and weirder. And more public. And much more public to the point where Qatar Airways is publishing excerpts of the judgment. They're saying, if you want to read the whole thing, contact our PR firm, which is weird, kind of interesting (laughs) in and of itself. So what happened this week was the judge in the case that Qatar and Airbus are litigating in London's high court. The judge issued rulings for a variety of things, you know, kind of motions and, and the like to move the case along. And Airbus made some comments that they were generally pleased with what had happened. Then Qatar said, well, that's a complete and utter misrepresentation of everything that the judge said. So here are excerpts from the, the judge's decision, and this is, you know, how dare they. Then the judge came out, and this to me is the most interesting because two people on the opposite sides of a lawsuit fighting is to be expected. But then the judge came out and said, that Airbus and Qatar Airways should cooperate to get the Qatari civil aviation. Because remember, Qatar Airways is not grounding the A350s on its own. Those A350s are grounded by the Qatari Civil Aviation Authority as a regulatory issue. It's not a, we're the airline saying, we don't want to fly these planes. It's the airline saying, we would love to fly these planes, but there's a really big problem that our civil aviation regulator has said, we can't fly these planes. And so the judge in the ruling pointed out that because the Qatari authorities, the the civil aviation authority there, and IASA, which says this is not an airworthiness issue, it's a skin, it's a laminate issue, it's something that you know won't affect the ability to fly the plane. It's just not good. His argument, the judge's argument, is that the regulator in Qatar should be persuaded by both Qatar Airways and Airbus 
that this is not an airworthiness concern because Qatar Airways says it wants to get these A350s back in the air as quickly as possible. Well, of course, it needs them in service because right now it's having to fill in gaps in its fleet by leasing aircraft from like Cathay Pacific and elsewhere. So it absolutely needs these aircraft. Right. And so why not work together, being Qatar Airways and Airbus, to work together to try and get the Qatari Civil Aviation Authority to see that this is not an airworthiness issue. It's in fact just a surface issue or a cosmetic issue that can be resolved with design and rework. So we're nowhere near the end of this story. But the judge saying, why can't you folks work together? This could easily be solved is very interesting to me because of how the animosity between Qatar Airways and Airbus has just boiled and boiled and boiled for months. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm not a fan of the tactic Qatar has chosen at this point to bring the court proceedings over to the court of public opinion. I think it's not appropriate for them to be doing that at this point. So yesterday, which would be May 31st at my time, Eastern time, like 3 a.m., they tweeted very innocuously, in which city is the airport with the code CDG located? And they put a nice little poll. Is it London, New York, or Parisian? What do you think? I mean, I don't think I know that it's Paris, but I'm okay. curious to know that where this one's going. Well, 85.7% of people said it was Paris. So the other right. 15% need to, I don't know, hit Wikipedia More learning. They need to they listen need, to this they podcast. Need, they need to listen to this podcast, famously rattling off airport codes. But then less than two hours later, the Qatar Airways Twitter account, and I'm assuming their other social channels, was kind of seemingly hijacked with these court proceeding rants, I'm going to call them. The first one I'm going to quote here, out of nowhere with no no introduction, the judgment handed down by the justice in a hearing in the high court on 26th May has exposed for all in the aviation sector to see the fiction of the Airbus narrative that the condition affecting the Airbus A350s is a simple cosmetic paint issue. And then it goes on for more details and then a quote from a Qatar Airways spokesperson just Completely bizarre for an airline social media account to just dive into a court proceeding like that, especially without any sort of introduction or explanation. Just keeping in mind also that Qatar is still operating other Airbus A350s that have not been grounded quite yet in its fleet since they're newer. But if I'm a passenger just browsing the Qatar Airways social media sites and I see this, it just can't be confidence-inducing that they're bad-mouthing Airbus and bashing their own aircraft while they're still flying these aircraft. It's just a very strange move to bring this out into the public like that at this point. Yeah, that's the other thing because <laughs> these tweets are sandwiched in between, like you mentioned, the Shah de Gaulle airport code question, and then visit the National Museum of Qatar. And then later the day, hey, how about taking an adventure to Bali? Like, I mean, <laughs> why not? Okay, that sounds great, but Why like, not? this just seems totally inappropriate to me. I don't know who would have approved this at Qatar. I have not seen other airlines of this size and this statue really take a court proceeding out to the public like this, but it's just not a good look in my opinion. Well, I mean, and the other thing to me is that what this says, and, and this is you know to your point where you've got this on your Twitter feed and you, you could be a passenger kind of researching what you want to... There are 12, at the moment that we're recording on the 1st of June, there are 12 Qatar Airways A350s in the air at the moment. 
what does that say about the ones that are still if this I mean that's the, what I don't understand about all of this if this is a true root cause affecting all of these aircraft every single A350 and it's a design issue and there needs to be a full investigation and everything wouldn't you say well I'm not going to fly any of these yeah I mean they need the aircraft and the newer frames just haven't had the paint degradation yet and I'm sure when they get to that point those aircraft could potentially be grounded but at this point I guess they're fine I don't know but what I'm saying is if I'm if not I'm not looking at this I mean, that's what I'm looking at I'm yeah. looking at it from a passenger's perspective not a person who's listened to this podcast and who's been following along with us but as someone who is maybe you know booking a trip or or has recently booked a trip and they booked a ticket on Qatar Airways and, and now they see that they're on an A350 and they go well, what's the Qatar A350 like and their introduction to the Qatar A350 is Airbus and Qatar Airways are suing each other what am I supposed to think? I don't know. And who does this benefit also sending this out on Twitter? Like if you want to put out a press release and send it to the media and send it to bloggers, fine. But putting it on social media channels that a regular passenger is going to go to, to DM them, to ask them to rebook because their flight is delayed. I don't want to go to an airline's page and, and see them bad mouthing the aircraft manufacturer and their own aircraft and their own fleet. That's crazy. I agree. Okay. Let's talk about an airline and a manufacturer that have made up recently. Yeah. Norwegian Air. This is the revived- The OG Norwegian. Yes. This is the revived OG Norwegian short haul. Yes. Right. (laughs) Not Norwegian. I guess it would be like 3.0. But anyway, Norwegian has agreed to buy 50 737 MAX 8 aircraft and options for uh, further 30. The order also deals with the long-standing compensation claims that Norwegian has had against Boeing for the initial MAX deliveries, as well as their order of 787s that had been beset by technical issues. So the order kind of solidifies their position there. They're done with that. That's all over. And now they're looking forward to the new planes. Hey, that's great. The original incarnation of Norwegian had a lot of maxes on order. They did operate them for quite a while, even transatlantic flights for a bit before things started to unravel. But nearly all of them were returned to the leasing companies, except I think two of them that Ian you said were owned outright and are still operating. But Norwegian was very specific to say that in response to people going, oh, here we go again, Norwegian's going to overexpand and they're doing the same thing again. No. These 50 737 MAXs are for fleet replacement to replace the NGs that are coming off lease in the next few years. They are explicitly not taking them for fleet expansion. So nice to see acknowledgement of that, that they're not making the same mistakes that they made in the past. Uh, these aircraft are pure, nearly purely just for fleet replacement rather than expansion. So that's nice. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a good thing to see you know, Norwegian kind of renewing its fleet. It's also a good thing to see from Boeing's perspective, A, they're getting more aircraft orders, but B, they've settled what was a rather large outstanding set of lawsuits with an airline customer that they certainly, the fewer lawsuits that Boeing has to deal with at this point, the better. Yeah. I know we've talked about this before, but Norwegian historically just had a run of 
tragically bad timing and luck with their 787s not being able to get delivered when they were starting transatlantic service and then they were grounded and then the 737 maxes they were going to start transatlantic service and then those were grounded and then the engine issues on the 78 so they it was really just not meant to be nothing went in norwegians the original norwegians favor but hopefully this time is different and uneventful and none of their aircraft gets stuck in iran this time Oh, wow. I'd completely forgotten. Well, not forgotten, but it had not even crossed my mind. So yes, that, it's been a that while too. since that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a callback. Okay. So let's talk about Norse. Tell me what they're up to. Norse. They hinted quite subtly at this a few weeks ago and then very quickly pivoted really without an announcement until a couple of days later that they will be pulling a Norwegian and operating transatlantic service out of London Gatwick to New York JFK. Interestingly, through the summer with a little connecting flight between Gatwick and Oslo, I think it was. So yeah, it really seems like Norwegian, the original Norwegian is trying to take its time, pace things out, not do anything crazy. And and Norris is doing all of the things Norwegian did that ended up bringing it down. But whatever the case, I have lamented in the past that I was sad to see Norwegian go because they were super low-cost fares as long as you were willing to put up with the fees and not great operational reliability. But now Norse is getting into the game out of Gatwick to, I think, at least JFK. I'm not sure if there's another city. But if you jump on it now, the fares are stupid cheap. I mean, like $330 round trip if you somehow manage to not bring anything with you and not need a bag and not want a seat and not have a meal, which some people can pull off, but it is very, very cheap right now if you're looking for a transatlantic deal for the summer, if they're able to actually start service when they say they will. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess, the biggest thing right now, especially after after our conversation with John, that can you introduce an operation on time at the moment and have it work? I, we'll find I, I out. That's, that's the, the biggest problem right there. Let's talk about what's going on with Rhodes Aviation. Who? Exactly. So Rhodes Aviation is the company that operated the Transair 737 that made a forced landing near Honolulu last July. So almost a year ago now. So this was the 2nd of July, 2021. The 737-200 cargo aircraft was flying out of Honolulu and had to turn back, didn't quite make it back, and the aircraft crashed into the bay about two miles south of Honolulu. Both pilots were okay and were rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard. Nearly a year later, the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration has said, yet we don't want you flying anymore. The FAA has proposed the revocation of the air carrier certificate for Rhodes Aviation, which was operating the Transair 737, for a variety, numerous safety violations. So they had already, the FAA had already been investigating Rhodes when the 737 crashed. They were grounded two weeks after the crash by the FAA. And now the FAA is saying, we want to take your certificate away. 
the carrier says, no, we want to keep flying. But the FAA says, among other things, that the airline failed to maintain safety records, had issues with its operations manual, failed to conduct risk assessments when necessary, failed to provide specific documentation when it was mandated to. It operated aircraft operated two Boeing 737s more than 900 times after failing to add the aircraft to its maintenance and inspection program. It gets worse. Operated a Boeing 737 airplane on 33 flights when it was not airworthy due to engine compressor fan blades that did not meet manufacturer standards. Oh, that's not good at all. And there's more. No. Yeah, there's more. But that was the worst of them, at least in my eye, kind of the operating a not airworthy aircraft. So Rhodes has 15 days from the date of issue, which was the 24th. So they have until a few days into June to respond and say, you know, these are the reasons we should not have our certificate revoked. I don't see that happening. They might respond. I don't I'm see sure the they will. FAA going along with that. Now, did we ever get a, an NTSB final report about this Not crash? Yet. So no. this, I'm guessing this is a bit of a sneak peek into some of the things the NTSB will be reporting on in addition to many other things and how that report is probably going to lean. It's not probably going to look too positive on the operator. No, I can't imagine it would given all that we know from the FAA's investigation so far. But the NTSB report will certainly focus more on that particular incident and what was wrong with the aircraft there. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how those two, how uh, the NTSB report dovetails with the FAA's allegations. But I'm willing to say that they probably won't be flying much longer. Nope. Let's close the show with some updates and some anniversaries. First, happy 10th anniversary to the 747-8i. Lufthansa put that into service 10 years ago this week. And as we talked about last Last week, week. two weeks ago, last week, it's still going strong. Hey, that's great. So there you go. And then a few weeks ago, we began the conversation talking about it was a $27. I love how the report put a seasonal beer. It wasn't just a regular beer. It was a seasonal beer mm-hmm. and you know airport gouging and how things like that. So we asked everybody to, to send in some interesting purchases of their own. And more than two, which is to say three people, sent in messages about paying not so much you know having a choice in the matter, but just how much things cost in Switzerland, buying anything in the airport. So this person is from the UK, so 20 pounds for a hamburger. This person converted it into US dollars, so they said $35 in the airport. So I guess the thing is don't eat a hamburger in Switzerland, in an airport in Switzerland. But as far as food goes, the absolute topper was this person paid 40 pounds for a meal at Burger King in Da Nang, Vietnam. And what, what was in that meal? I don't know. They didn't specify. I don't know what's on the Burger King menu in Vietnam, but it's probably not filet mignon. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. Yeah. They paid 40 pounds for a thing there. The most interesting one was from somebody who was traveling through Hong Kong a few years ago, and they had picked up a shot glass, and they had one in their hand, and the shopkeeper came up to them and said, well, if you buy one, you get one free which was great because he was in the market for two. And then they said, no, buy one, get two free. And he was like, okay, that's an even better deal. Why not? And then it was buy one, get three free. So they walked away with three free shot glasses. Unfortunately, the story doesn't work out in that one of them broke in the bag and then another was dropped during Uh. the unpacking. So they only walked away with two shot glasses. 
But I mean, there's deals to be had. So it's not all bad in the world of airport ancillary transactions. No, no. I don't buy much in the airport if I can avoid it. But the last time in December of last year when we were trying to escape Stockholm, yeah, when both of us were trying to escape. I bought a bunch of medium priced chocolate in Stockholm. And then my flight was canceled and delayed. And then I ended up just claiming that as my food allowance for the EU 261 compensation. And SAS ended up ah. paying for it. So that there's a workaround for everything. There you go. There you go. It all works out. The only other thing we have to say is that we messed up slightly on the story that we talked about last week with Jet Airways. I think Jason and I were working our way through which aircraft it operated. And I think we may have mentioned that Jet Airways took delivery but did not, in fact, operate their 737 MAX. In fact, they did operate their 737 MAX for a while before ceasing operation. And the 737 MAX stopped operating when they were grounded worldwide. And then the airline stopped operating before the 737 MAX could be put back into service. So just a correction on that particular story there. Ian takes full responsibility. Absolutely, I do. The buck stops with me, or the pound or Swiss francs, as the case may be. This has been episode 166 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.